Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm joined by my co-host and the co-author of our book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Naran Al-Ajba. Good evening. Before we start, I want to let our listeners know that in this episode, we will be discussing topics that some may find disturbing, including descriptions of sexual acts, as well as the death of a patient by suicide. If you are having any mental health concerns or thoughts of self-harm, help is available. Please contact your physician immediately or call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline for assistance. In April of 2018, the California Board of Nursing received a complaint regarding Gerald J. Balt, a psychiatric nurse practitioner working at a mental health clinic in the Los Angeles area. The allegations claimed that Baltz had engaged in an inappropriate sexual relationship with a patient of his who was in a fragile and vulnerable state. The patient subsequently took her own life. The Board of Nursing opened an investigation officially and filed a formal complaint against him in June of 2020. As of today, six months later, Baltz uh, still has an active license to practice as a nurse practitioner. He actually has what's called a nurse practitioner furnishing license, which means he can independently prescribe scheduled uh, medications, which is a higher level prescriber, and is listed as a psychiatric telemedicine provider as well. Today, we're going to discuss details of this case, why it has taken the Board of Nursing in California so long to act, and why a nurse practitioner with this record is still practicing psychiatry today, two years after the initial allegations were made. To help us better understand this situation, we are joined by our special guest today, psychiatrist Dr. Natasha Cervantes. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Naran, why don't you start us out by giving us a rundown of the initial allegations against Gerald Baltz. Baltz began treating SR in April of 2015, and, and this is all public record. So I want to be clear, we are using public record to generate this discussion. Two years later, so that would be April of 2017, he asked her on a date and began secretly seeing her while she was under his care. According to the allegations, the patient was in a fragile and suicidal mental state, and yet Baltz discouraged her from checking herself into a psychiatric facility. Two months later, the patient died by suicide. Her family subsequently filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Baltz and Insight Choices, which is actually the name of the company uh, he was working for. And as a result, a $200,000 arbitration was awarded to the family with that $200,000 paid on behalf of Gerald Baltz by his professional liability insurance carrier. So it turns out that these initial allegations or complaint were initiated by the patient who passed away's former boyfriend, who said that he really didn't know anything about this until he was cleaning out her apartment after her death, and he discovered a large number of prescription medications in her home. So let's start reviewing what the Board of Nursing decided to do when they received these allegations. Uh, The first thing that they did was they reviewed the medical records. And they found that, indeed, Baltz had started seeing the patient in April of 2015. And the first complaints against Baltz that they discovered was that his record keeping was really poor. The documentation did not include any history of present illness. It did not include a comprehensive mental status exam, any medical history, any current or past medications, allergies, 
past psychiatric treatment history, psychosocial history, or even any clear documentation of how he was able to determine her diagnosis of attention deficit disorder. And he also failed to discuss any other diagnoses in his initial evaluation. He did not order any labs on the patient. He did not order any diagnostic tests. And he treated her for several years, during which time he wrote prescriptions, 17 prescriptions for alprazolam, which is a benzodiazepine for anxiety, another one for lorazepam, which is in the same family, 10 for amphetamines. And in addition to that, he prescribed a whole slew of other medications, including multiple antidepressants, mood stabilizers. Dr. Cervantes, what were your thoughts when you read this long list of medications and you saw the the documentation that was performed by Baltz? Well, a few things come to mind. Uh, She was on a number of medications. And like you mentioned, the alprazolam, the lorazepam, those are benzodiazepines which are used to treat anxiety primarily. So at some point, there must have been some suspicion of an anxiety disorder, potentially. There was also a lot of antidepressants. So there's at least three antidepressants. I noticed there was Lexapro, Welbutrin, Rintelix, which had a name change and later became Trintelix, but it's essentially the same medication. And then there's a mood stabilizer, Lamictal, which is usually used for people with bipolar disorder, usually the less severe forms of bipolar disorder. And then there's Vralar, which is technically an antipsychotic, but it is also approved for the use of bipolar disorder. But, and there's propanolol, which is a beta blocker. It's actually a a blood pressure medication that is sometimes used to treat anxiety or sometimes when people have uh, public speaking and they have like, they want somebody to take right before that, like that might be something that they're given. But this, this combination of medications suggests that there was at least more than one diagnosis going on. And it's not clear that it was really well-defined. For example, somebody with bipolar disorder, you'd want to be particularly careful in treating them with antidepressants because there's a risk of making somebody manic or putting somebody in what we call a mixed state, which is a combination of depressive and manic symptoms, which can be really uncomfortable and really difficult to manage. So I think this tells me that it it wasn't clear exactly what the diagnosis was, or maybe there was multiple diagnoses, which makes it a more complicated patient. Which is not uncommon in psychiatry, right, Tasha? Right. It's, it's absolutely not uncommon. Uh, people often have two or three different diagnoses, but especially if you're treating somebody, if she's got 17 prescriptions for benzodiazepines, which by the way are a controlled substance, they can be highly addictive. They really should be monitored uh, very carefully if they're going to be given long-term. This suggests that she was a fairly complicated patient. I, I see at least two different diagnoses that were being hypothesized here just based on the treatment modality. So you um, as a psychiatrist acknowledge, like just looking at this, you can tell that this patient needed more, needed a higher level of care, most likely than possibly could have been provided by a nurse practitioner. And in California, nurse practitioners at the time required supervision with a physician and Baltz had a supervising physician assigned to him that he was supposed to work with. However, the board of nursing found when they reviewed the documentation that there was never any mention of any review of the chart with the physician. And when they asked the physician in in their investigation, He also stated that he never reviewed the records in this particular case, nor did he really review any uh, cases with the patient, which was against California state law. So what are your thoughts when you hear that? Right, correct. So anytime a physician agrees to supervise or collaborate with a nurse practitioner, there really is an obligation to do some minimum due diligence. And that can be one of several ways. Uh, Usually there's some minimum required number of charts or percentage of charts that should be looked at. 
But you also want to think about how those come to the physician's attention. So are you relying on the nurse practitioner to bring that chart to the physician's attention? Or is a nurse or is the physician maybe randomly selecting charts to review without the nurse practitioner necessarily picking and choosing? I personally do supervise a nurse practitioner, and that is what I do. I, there is a combination of her coming to me as needed, but I also will pull random charts to make sure that there's due diligence that, that is done. Because ultimately, it, it might it might be the physician's responsibility if they if they have knowledge of the case. Well, I mean, clearly um, in this case, the physician was not doing their job. They weren't reviewing any records. At a minimum, I think that was the requirement in California, and that wasn't happening. Right. So that's a problem. I think, especially if you have a case where there's multiple diagnoses, and we didn't even talk about the fact that she was on uh, stimulant medication, so amphetamine salts, um, Adderall. Those are also controlled substances, and that is another very risky medication to manage if somebody has bipolar disorder, for example, because that can also make somebody manic or unstable. And again, highly addictive. So you have somebody on two highly addictive medications. We don't know if there is substance abuse disorder. Sometimes those things are not disclosed by by the patients, and sometimes there's some due diligence that should be done by prescriber as well, and it's not clear that that was done here. Right. So problem number one is you have a psychiatric nurse practitioner who, by the way, had only worked for one year as a nurse before he went back to get his master's degree in as a nurse practitioner. He's treating a complex patient without receiving what seems like proper supervision. And then when you look at the list of medications, there were so many and so many different classes. And according to some of the allegations in the, the complaint, one of the reasons why he prescribed so many medications was because he was apparently trying to get the patient approved for an alternate type of treatment called transcranial magnetic stimulation. Can you talk to us about what that procedure is? It's more of a course of treatment. It's been around for about a decade. It has been more recently covered more easily by insurance companies, but basically it involves a patient is awake and they have a, a very strong magnet that is placed over certain areas of their skull. And there's a very large electromagnetic current that is applied, but the person's awake. The person doesn't really feel anything. There might be some mild clicking that they hear. But the idea is that this stimulates certain parts of the brain to release neurotransmitters that might be deficient. And it's really only approved for depression. So it's one of those things that you need to be very clear on your diagnosis. And there needs to usually be some treatment failures before this is something that is considered. So it's not the first thing that you would try. You would usually use this if there's been two or three different antidepressants tried and there hasn't been a benefit. But again, it's it's also important to have a good grasp on the diagnosis. And it looks like possibly there was other things going on besides depression. It's um, not an inexpensive treatment. When I was researching this, I found that the average cost of transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS in Florida, where I live, the average cost is $11,000 for a complete treatment, which involves 30 treatment sessions, each of which costs around 300, $300 to $400. So it sounds like that's, there's a lot of money that potentially could be made in TMS in some clinics. I don't know that that was the case here, but there was there were allegations that the patients were being rushed through medication management so that they could be approved by insurance to have this procedure done. Right. That's not surprising. It is not inexpensive. Uh, the course of treatment is usually five days a week for six weeks. So a, t- a total of 30 treatment sessions. So it's also a pretty significant commitment for the patient to be you know, seen five days a week for this, uh, probably about an hour each time. So there's already some serious problems with quality of care here and maybe even potential financial gain pushing the patient towards the TMS, maybe. 
But then on top of all of this, now we get into a much more serious allegation, which is that, that of inappropriate sexual relationship with the patient. Naran, can you tell us what the board found when they began to investigate these allegations? It's interesting that the board investigator basically interviewed several of friends of the patient who shared information about the text messages and what they understood about the relationship. While SR never mentioned Gerald Baltz's name, she told her friend that she that he was working on his doctorate, which indeed is was true at the time. SR's text messages to YK on April 10th state she was going out with her doctor that evening and described how she had given Nurse Baltz the, the number during a patient visit. And so they exchanged cell phone numbers, which is what that indicates. In an undated message, SR wrote to the same friend YK, saw my doc. He said, quote, do not go to the hospital. He's putting me on new meds again, but he is so hot, like fine. I think I'm dating my doctor now. Right. So this was the allegation that that was part of it, which was really important, which is that the patient was not doing well. And the doctor, well, not doctor, the nurse practitioner specifically told her, according to this text message, not to go to the hospital to seek more aggressive care. Correct. Right. And and so, Natasha, what do you think when you hear about just exchanging cell phone numbers and uh, that sort of thing with patients? Uh, is that something that any psychiatrist or psych NP should be doing? So giving the cell phone number itself is not problematic. There's certainly plenty of physicians that will provide that. And actually, it's, it's been found that sharing that in and of itself does not increase the, the number of inappropriate calls to the, to the doctor. So if somebody's committed and, and especially if they're private practice and maybe they don't have a group of people that they work with, it's certainly not unheard of to, to provide that. So that in and of itself is not problematic. It's the kind of crossing the line into what's professional communication and what's personal and more well, self-interested things rather that, than clinically oriented care. Yeah. And Baltz knew that it was questionable because one of the texts that the patient sent to her friend was, we exchanged numbers and he had a meltdown over it being unethical. He acknowledged to her that this wasn't right. And in fact, in a text message between Baltz and the patient, Baltz said, I'm a healer. It would be unethical for me to text with her, but not for you. I took an oath. So he clearly knew that he was behaving questionably. And then he went on to add, quote, if I did anything to harm you, it would not only be a dick move, but cause 10 years of school and work to disappear for me and injure you in some way. So he's also very worried about himself. He's talking about losing his years of work to a, I guess, a complaint against his license. Uh, And then he also told her to delete his texts, like multiple times in these text messages that the board discovered, he's telling her delete the texts. So he knew things were not ethical. So now we see there from the board's investigation, the two are texting back and forth. And then the next thing that is discovered are photographs of both of them, Baltz and the patient, of their necks. And it shows bruising, which they describe in text as hickeys. And Baltz says in text messages, we tore it up, woman. And, quote, he had scratches on my chest that I don't recall getting, quote. And and they even get a little more graphic. And we don't necessarily need to belabor the things that were said, but there's discussions of scratching and um, aggressive groping and uh, finger penetration and things that are really uh, quite uh, shocking to read. 
And, and, uh, but again, after all of these things, uh, Baltz is telling her to delete the text message. And then finally, the next thing that we see is Baltz giving the patient his home address and then followed by graphic text describing their sexual encounter in which the patient later says that her vagina is, quote, broken. And then he apologizes and says, I was gentle this time. I'm sorry they hurt. I'm talking about her breasts. And then he says, P.S. I love your vagina. So there is, uh, there is no question that there was uh, inappropriate sexual relations. And, and Natasha, what do you think when you hear all of this? Well, you know, especially for, psych- uh, for anybody in the mental health field, we're dealing with people who are potentially very vulnerable and very fragile. So even though perhaps in other medical specialties, it's not as egregious, I think it's, it's even worse when you're talking about somebody who has been trusted with treating this person, perhaps with psychotherapy, this person has told them some very intimate things, some very vulnerable things. And the power differential is so big between that person who, who, who's treating and, and, the, and the patient. So it's always considered unethical to start any kind of romantic relationship with, with, a, with a psychiatric patient. And, and clearly, you know, it's, it looks like he knew this, but it, it didn't matter. It happened anyway. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of problems with that. So care should have been terminated. Well, he did do that. And he did end up, ter- he transitioned her or he started to transition her care to another clinician. But indeed, things started going downhill because about a week later, the next thing we, we don't know everything that happened, of course, we were only implying from these texts, but about a week later, Baltz texted the patient to ask her whether she would be coming for her TMS session at the clinic. And she wrote back and said she would call later. She was sorry. She had been busy. And Balt said, well, you know, the other person that I referred you to wants you to follow up regarding the treatment, but also with me because I'm the one who referred you. And he wrote, he said, quote, so that will be fun, quote. So again, there's definitely, you can see that they're having probably some conversations back and forth and things are getting a little awkward and a little uncomfortable. So the patient even at this point writes and responds, quote, fuck it. I'm not doing it. It's too much drama. And Baltz writes back, listen, I feel terrible about this whole thing. Most important thing is your mental health. This is exactly why I'm an idiot. So to your point, Natasha, this patient is very vulnerable. And at this point now, after their sexual relationship of two weeks, that it seems like she has decided not to continue to pursue her treatment. Right. So now you have somebody who was not doing well, was being referred for something that was a little bit outside the box, a little bit outside of the ordinary, and is now not following through and is now dealing with another, you know, potentially pretty significant trauma, depending on how she's perceiving this, or certainly unwanted, unwanted drama in her life. You know, we don't know what this person's vulnerability was as a patient, but the fact that she was certainly treated with a lot of antidepressant medications, a lot of anti-anxiety medications, this probably was not helping the situation. Right. And in fact, sadly, we, we don't know much about what happened in the next few months, but about two months after this, this text message back and forth, the patient did take her own life. We do know that about a year later, a significant other at that time found all of this information and turned in a report to the Board of Nursing. And I think the hardest part about this is that, you know, a year after the incident, uh, Mr. Baltz was interviewed by the nursing board. And I, I would say it appears maybe he was not as forthcoming as he should have been based on what 
evidence there was to demonstrate what was going on. So he denied remembering the situation, denied the texting. But I suspect that a patient that you've been seeing for two years before you start dating, you probably remember dating them or doing parts, things to their bodies if you're going to text that you love their vagina. When asked if he remembered SR, uh, Mr. Baltz replied he remembered who she was, but didn't remember all that clearly. He, he also told the investigator he couldn't remember even what he treated her for. And, and it's interesting to me because I don't think he really ever identified what he was treating her for. So I, I do find that fascinating because that is called to attention by this investigator in the beginning that there's no differential. The things we've talked about, there's no diagnosis officially, no psychiatric evaluation, no history of illness, and then no differential. He confirmed uh, that his personal cell phone number, which matched his contact information in SR's cell phone, and he admitted he provided patients with his cell phone, which again, as Dr. Cervantes said, is not necessarily an ethical or boundary breach. He stated he couldn't remember ever texting SR. When actually shown screenshots of text messages between them, uh, he denied that they were from him. The board investigator then showed Mr. Baltz a photograph within a text thread showing his neck with hickeys. And I guess there must be a mark on his neck. Um, I believe it's maybe a tattoo. It's a tattoo. Yeah, he has a tattoo and it matched exactly where the above the hickeys just above the tattoo. And in fact, it's so interesting because the the investigator report says that he asked Baltz to show his neck and Baltz pulled his shirt down and basically revealed the tattoo and it matched exactly the, the text picture where the hickey was. Wow. So, yeah, so it was pretty egregious and he was clearly caught red handed saying he'd never he denied these are not my texts. I don't know what you're talking about. And then there was the evidence right in front of him. And even more important, he later admitted he was aware that SR had suicidal thoughts. And uh, when he knew SR was suicidal, he didn't do his job, which is did not refer her to a higher level of care, did not send her to the emergency room and did not conduct an in-depth suicide assessment or crisis plan. So, I mean, what do you think of that, Dr. Cervantes? Right. I mean, if somebody is suicidal, there definitely needs to be an in-depth risk assessment. So it's not just asking the person, are you going to kill yourself? I mean, it, it goes deeper than that. You want to look at what risk factors they have whether there's substance abuse, whether there's acute stressors that are happening, uh, any significant losses. And you also want to look at what protective factors a person has as well. So it, it works both ways, risk and, and protective factors. And as uncomfortable as it is, if somebody's crossing that threshold where they need a higher level of observation, it can't be done on an outpatient basis. Nobody can be expected to be with somebody 24-7. That requires either an emergency room or an inpatient level of care, or maybe something in between, maybe a partial hospitalization program where the person is seen every day and, and, and still goes home at night. So there's, there's certainly a, a number of higher levels of care that could have been considered if somebody was suicidal, but it doesn't sound like that was, that was considered. And there's also medications that have been proven to be helpful in people who have um, suicidal thinking. One in particular is lithium, which is often used for refractory depression as well. And perhaps that is something that should have been considered at some point. We don't know. We don't know how long these thoughts lasted. We don't know if it was a recurrent thing. We don't know what our history of prior attempts were, but there were certainly, you know, there's certainly other things that might have been considered that it looks like we're not. Of course, we don't know everything. And if we some of this we are speculating on. But what we do know is that this case did get go to arbitration and that the family of this patient was awarded $200,000 for wrongful death in arbitration. So that doesn't necessarily, I guess, does that mean that there was guilt or is that just, I guess someone could just settle to avoid going to court? That's the most common thing. Uh, a lot of these times cases will settle. Um, it, it spares the families from the pain of, of reliving this, going to court. 
having embarrassing information about their significant other that is now dead come out, making them look perhaps not in the best of light. So a lot of times, the majority of the time, 95% of cases uh, do settle out of court in some kind of arbitration. Those things are usually, those settlements are usually reported in in a practitioner data bank. So, I mean, it's there even though it wasn't a trial, it's definitely a blip. I think that, that it'll be taken into account for, for credentialing if that ever comes up in the future for, for that nurse practitioner. But yes, it doesn't surprise me that the, that the case settles. And perhaps there was something that made them think that, that, that it would be a difficult trial to win. We don't know, but certainly 95% of cases do settle out of court. So the incident happened. The treatment was in April of 2017. The patient passed away in July of 2017. And then her boyfriend reported to the board about a little under a year later, April of 2018. So the board of nursing began to investigate as we just went through and they filed a claim, I guess, a case against Baltz on June 15th, 2020. Here we are in December. It's been six months since the Board of Nursing filed this claim, which is public record. Jay Baltz is still licensed today. He has an active and unrestricted license to practice as a nurse practitioner. He works at a a different clinic. He's not at the same place anymore. He provides telepsychiatry to patients both in California and in Washington state. What are your thoughts on how it is that a nurse practitioner that's accused of these egregious acts continues to remain in practice all this time later? Um, Well, I I don't know. I suspect that there was, there's been some delay related to COVID. I can speak from a a case that I'm involved in in in, in, in New York, where certainly there was a significant delay on a medical board case that, that I was involved in as, a, as an expert. And I think that might be part of it. Usually there is a due process that is needs to be followed before somebody is uh, has their license taken away. So there's usually the opportunity to have counsel and to have a an administrative hearing. So it's not it's not a hearing in before like a legal court, but there's usually a panel of, of people from the nursing board that would be making the decision as to licensing. And there could still certainly be a consequence. I suspect that it's not going to end here. And the consequences could be anything from the most severe, which is certainly removing somebody, taking somebody's license away permanently. That's extreme, certainly. A lot of times people will be put on probation. So they, they'll be put on probation for three, five years, and they'll be assigned a practice monitor of some kind. So they'll either have to have a uh, usually it's a it's a physician, a psychiatrist that's a, separate from the physician that they're supposed to be collaborating with. That's really monitoring their practice more carefully, going through those charts, making sure that the standard of care is being followed. So it's a lot stricter than just having that collaborative relationship with um, with a physician like he was supposed to have it at baseline anyway. So is this um, a pretty typical length of time that it could take to investigate any kind of practitioner for wrongdoing? It's not uncommon for it to take that long. I had a case who that's been going on for five years that, that just that has now gone for decision and, and we still don't have a decision. And, and the case was investigated starting five years ago. So it, yeah. it's certainly not unheard of. And I suspect that again, with, with COVID and, and priorities being shifted as to where the, the board might be allocating their resources this year, that probably didn't help. But I would say, it, I don't think it's over. I, I, I think there's going to be some kind of consequence given, given again, the, the judgment and, and with the record that was, that was presented. 
We do know that the California Board of Nursing has already gotten in some trouble there for falsifying documents and saying that they've taken action against nurses when they haven't, and they've been really behind on um, following up on complaints. And I think it's really concerning because who knows how many patients could be harmed in the meantime? Well, I mean, yes, I believe in due process and there needs to be standards, but should it take so long to have uh, as someone practicing medicine still out there treating vulnerable patients? Well, yeah, it shouldn't. I mean, the short answer is ideally it should not, but there's, I'm sure that there's, there's delays at many levels. Also, the, another thing to, to think about is as this becomes known, it might be difficult for him to find a collaborating position that wants to be associated with him, that wants to have that responsibility of collaborating and having that oversight. And if, you know, if that for him to practice and he can't find somebody to do that, then that is another way to to limit the exposure. Only thing I wanted to point out is what's interesting is Washington State, which is the state I practice in, which has an extremely aggressive medical board, actually gave, so it's the nursing board, obviously, in Washington that approves the licenses, but he was given a nursing license in Washington State after this complaint had been filed. And so that's the part to me that's really concerning is that the Washington State Board of Nursing, um, I think, has kind of fall, if that indeed is how it played out, because as best as I can tell in the records, he was issued a license after this complaint was filed. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's it's really terrible that that, that's happened. And And there's nothing on his He doesn't need a collaborating in Washington, right? There's independent practice. And California is, is, I don't know what, what the status is now, but they're on the cusp of independent practice for nurse practitioners. So that may not even become be an issue any longer. No, he's he's that's what really concerns me. He's completely unrestricted in Washington and he's serving. We are very, very underserved for psychiatric care. We don't have anyone in our entire town of of 250,000 that practices child psychiatry where I'm at, for example. So so vulnerable patients will reach out to him. He's cheaper. He's three hundred dollars or something for a full visit. That is very concerning that a licensing board would would grant a license when there's this investigation that is ongoing. We're going to get a lot more into some of the details on psychiatric nurse practitioners, on licensing issues, on the differences in part two of this series. In the meantime, I will encourage you, if you'd like to learn more about these issues, please get our book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. And if you're a physician and you'd like to work more on this issue, please join our group Physicians for Patient Protection. You can find us on the web at physiciansforpatientprotection.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and also to our YouTube channel, Patients at Risk. Mm -hmm.